If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 11. I really am catching my breath from that baptism. I ran down here as fast as I could, and I barely made it. Mark chapter 11 is where we'll be this morning, and we're jumping back into our verse-by-verse study of the life of Jesus according to the gospel of Mark. You might remember last year, we went through the first 10 chapters verse by verse, and it took the better part of last year seven months. And this morning, we're going to be jumping back in. But since we took a break for Advent, and some of you may be new or visiting with us this morning, I felt like a brief overview was, uh, was in order for us. So let me just give you a couple of details that I think are pertinent for our study today about the Gospel of Mark. The author of this book, Mark, is believed to be a man named John Mark, who briefly went on a missionary journey with the Apostle Paul. You can read about that in the book of Acts. But later, he served as a ministry assistant to the Apostle Peter while Peter was leading the, book, or the church in Rome. And during his time with Peter, Mark was able to learn extensive details about the life of Jesus Christ through Peter's perspective. And it's interesting how you see that take shape as you study the book of Mark. And one of the features of this gospel is that Mark moves really quickly through the first three years of Jesus' earthly ministry because he focuses mainly on the works of Jesus rather than the words of Jesus. So this gospel doesn't have big, long passages of teaching like the gospel of Mark or the gospel of John have. He's emphasizing the power and the authority that Jesus has by the works that he displayed in his earthly ministry, bringing God's kingdom to this world. That's actually one of the first things that you learn from Jesus as he appears on the scene in the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 1, verse 14 says this, After John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see it there. Jesus arrives on the scene and says the kingdom of God is at hand. It's close enough. You can reach out and touch it. And without going into the details, Jesus is being really intentional here in the way that he appears on the scene because he is the king of God's kingdom. That's why the kingdom is at hand. The king has arrived. And he shows his kingly authority by uh, exercising power over demons and disease and the natural world. However, he becomes really careful about the way that he describes himself as king. He doesn't come right out and declare, I am the king. He uses phrases like that. The kingdom of God is at hand. And that's actually another important feature in the book of Mark. It's called the messianic secret. And here's what that means. Jesus often, in the book of Mark especially, tells people not to share what they've seen about his power and authority as he performed miracles. It's almost like he's keeping some of his power a secret. For instance, in the very first chapter of Mark, he heals a man who had leprosy and he tells him very clearly, do not tell anybody else what I've done here. And then on in chapter four, verse 10, he says that one of the reasons why he spoke in parables was precisely because he desired to keep certain truths about the kingdom a secret or keep them under wraps for time being. And what's going on with this messianic secret? Well, simply put, Jesus is controlling the way that he's going to arrive on the scene and the way he's going to set up the kingdom of God and the way he's going to reveal himself to the whole wide world 
unmistakably that he is the king. And that's what brings us to our text for this morning. The day has finally arrived when Jesus is going to make it clear to anyone who has eyes to see that he indeed is the king of God's kingdom. He's making a public announcement that's no longer a messianic secret. I am the king and I have arrived to do what I have planned from the beginning of, the to- of time. And that's what our text is about. It's a great place to jump back into our study of the book of Mark. So turn with me to Mark chapter 11. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. This is the word of God for us this morning. It says, now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage, to Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. He sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And we had looked around at everything. As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of God in our next text in the study of the gospel of Mark. And this is a passage that's known as the triumphal entry of Christ. That's the event that's taking place. The day is known as Palm Sunday. And it's known as Palm Sunday because the people spread palm branches on the road for Jesus. And if you know anything about Palm Sunday, it's the Sunday before Good Friday or the day of Christ's crucifixion. Here's what that means. In the book of Mark, this passage isn't just a turning point in the way that Jesus is doing public ministry. It's a turning point in how Mark is actually accounting for the ministry of Christ. You see, the first 10 chapters of Mark cover three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. These last six chapters will cover roughly one week. This text is one day, the first day of the final week of Christ's earthly ministry. Here's what Mark is doing. He's slowing down. He's walked very quickly to this point, but he's slowing down. He's becoming really intentional about the stories he tells and the details within that because he's emphasizing various things that are critical for us to know about the final passion week of Jesus. And so the question becomes this, what is Mark emphasizing in this text? Like, What does Mark, by the power of the Holy Spirit, want us to know without any doubt about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem? Well, let me give you the big idea that I see from this text. Here's the big idea. Jesus is our expected king who reigns in unexpected ways. Jesus is our expected king who reigns 
in unexpected ways. Now, let me show you why I say that from our text. First, let's start with that that opening phrase. Jesus is our expected king. Look back at verses 1 and 2 really quickly. Now, when they drew near to, to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Okay, stop right there. So for 10 chapters, Jesus has been ministering in the northern part of Israel, largely in an area surrounding the Sea of Galilee. But if you will remember, a couple chapters ago, there was another kind of turning point. Jesus set out on a beeline to go to Jerusalem, and it's his journey to the cross. He tells his disciples, I've got to go to Jerusalem where I'm going to be rejected and crucified and raised again. He's on a beeline to Jerusalem. And as you read the various gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, here's what you find. When Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, nothing was going to stand in his way. Nothing was going to stop him. He straight-lined it there. This week I read an estimate. There was about 106 miles for Jesus to travel from his home base of ministry in the city of Capernaum to Jerusalem. So about 106 miles that Jesus traveled on foot was his likely route. And he travels all of that, walking down these old roads in Jerusalem until our text. Notice that in verse 1, we find Jesus just outside his destination. He's near two villages, Bethphage and Bethany. Bethany was about two miles outside of Jerusalem. Just for reference, that's the same distance from where you're sitting to Walmart, which is all of our orientation points, right? Right there down the street. That's how close Jesus is to Jerusalem. So get this. Don't miss what Mark's doing by the power of the Spirit. Jesus has been on an unstoppable mission, beelining it to Jerusalem. He's come 104 miles on foot. He only has two more to go. With the finish line in sight, you might think Jesus would just run on into the city, right? This is what he's been waiting for. This is what he's been working for, but that's not what he does. He stops. He sends two of his disciples into one of the villages, probably Bethphage, because it seems like he's staying in Bethany through this week. And he describes to his disciples a donkey that he knows is there in the city that he wants them to bring back so he can ride into Jerusalem. He says, hey, if anybody asks you about the donkey, says the Lord needs it. And They'll let you go if you tell them they'll, you'll bring it right back. And I got to tell you, this is one of those details in the story where lots of people are tempted to use their imagination to try and fill in the blanks because it's kind of bizarre, right? It's kind of like me saying the Lord told me to go to Cocoa Beach and said there'd be an F-150 four-wheel drive right there by the road that nobody driven before. Go ahead and hotwire that thing. And if anybody asks, say, the Lord needs it. I'll bring it right back. It'll be okay, right? It's kind of what's going on there. What's going on with that? Well, well, here's the story. We don't know all of the details. We don't know if Jesus set this up with these people ahead of time. We don't know if it's just his omniscience that he knew exactly what would take place or a combination of both. We don't know because that's not the point. The point is that the disciples do what Jesus says, even though they may not understand And Peter probably said, hey, let's rock, paper, scissors this thing to see who has to go steal the donkey. If they go in and they tell the people the Lord needs it, those people seem to understand like that's a password. Yeah, we're okay with this. They bring that donkey back and here Jesus rides the final two miles of this 106-mile journey into the city. Now the question becomes, why would Jesus take a 106-mile journey on foot? 
only to stop two miles from his destination to ride a donkey into the city? That's a good question. Thanks for asking. I'll answer. The answer is he's sending an unmistakable message to the Jews and to all of us in turn. You see, God promised that he was going to send his people a rescuer who would rescue them in every way they needed rescued. The first promise about this rescuer occurs right in the dawn of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. At the sin of Adam and Eve, God promises to send this rescuer who will break the curse of sin and restore God's people. And then through the Old Testament, this this, uh, rescuer comes to be known as the Messiah. The anointed one of God. And over time, God reveals more and more details about the Messiah. And namely, that he will be a king. And not just any king. He would be the king over all kings. One of the clearest texts that tell us about the king Messiah is found in Isaiah 9-7. It's what we studied on Christmas Eve just a couple weeks ago. It says this. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's quite a king, isn't it? I love that description. This king, it says, will be so powerful that nothing in the world will stop him. It says his government will increase without end. He he will be the king, it says, where where he will rule on the throne of his father, David. He'll sit on the throne where David sat. Where was that? That's the city of Jerusalem. It says this king will be eternal. His peace will last forever. His reign will be forevermore. So this promised king, this rescuer that God said from the dawn of creation, that he would send to rescue his people in every way we need rescue. This king is an eternal king. He's an all-powerful king. And for hundreds of years, the people of God who'd heard these promises and believed them expected this promised king to come. But how would they know when he came? What would he be like? What would the sign be that they would realize he's finally come? Well, listen to this prophecy. It was occurred about 500 years before Jesus entered Jerusalem from Zechariah 9, 9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What is Jesus doing? He's doing this. He is intentionally fulfilling this prophecy. You see, the prophecies of the Old Testament were just predictions about what Jesus would do. They were promises from Jesus about what he would do. And Jesus is intentionally keeping his word. He's doing what he said he would do. He's making it unmistakably clear. I'm the king of God's people, the one they've been expected. As as he's riding into the city on this donkey, he is saying out loud for everyone who would know, I'm the king the world has been waiting on. I'm the king you've waited your whole life to see. And church, let's take a moment. Behold our king. His name is Jesus. And he's the eternal All-powerful King of kings and Lord of lords, no one can stop him. He created this universe 
by his powerful word and he sustains this universe by his unstoppable power. Can can I give you some good news about King Jesus? He rules over every other king and president and nation. He rules over politics. Can I get a witness? He rules over politics in an election cycle. We need to remember he is the Lord over lords who is king over politics and petitions, politicians and presidents and nations and wars and global economies. He rules over natural disasters and cosmic events. He rules over everything. And the Bible plainly teaches us this, that everything that will happen in the next week of Jesus' earthly ministry, the crowd turning on him, The mock trials, the unjust punishment, the decision of Pilate to allow him to be crucified. All the chaos, all the craziness. Jesus was in control. No one took his life from him. He laid it down willingly. He was making all of the chaos serve his plan. You know why? He's the eternal, all-powerful king. And church, before we move on, I think it's important for us to consider what we just heard. Let me just ask you this. Do you have any chaos or confusion or craziness or out of control stuff in your corner of the world? Of course you do. We all do. I want to encourage you even think of the thing in your life that feels so crazy. You can't hardly believe it's happened to you. Feels so chaotic, you know, it's out of your control. That, that place of confusion where you just don't know what's going on, that thing that would threaten to keep you up at night, the thing that wakes you up with fear and anxiety in the morning, that thing that is in your heart and your life but feels out of your control. Think of that thing, okay? Think of that. You all have one. You all have more than one. Now listen, listen. That place that feels chaotic and crazy for you doesn't feel crazy and chaotic to Jesus. He is in control. Jesus is ruling over that thing in your life this very moment. And he borrowed a donkey and rode it into Jerusalem so you'd know it. He's your expected king. The world may be out of your control, but it isn't out of his. And where I come from, we call that good news. That's gospel, friends. Jesus is our expected king. That's the primary thing that you see in this text, but it's not the only thing. Jesus is our expected king. That brings us to the second part of our big idea, though. Jesus reigns in unexpected ways. Look at verses 8 through 10 again. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Okay, so we just saw Jesus is sending a message, right? I'm the king you've expected. And here's what we find in this part. The crowd gets the message. They understand. They would have known the passage from Zechariah 9.9, that the king would ride into Jerusalem seated on a donkey. And as you might expect, they're thrilled. It says they spread their coats on the ground. That was sort of a cultural thing that had significance. Just a few moments ago, you all stood in applause. You didn't do that because you were mad or upset. 
That was a show of love and care and excitement and celebration. We know that culturally. And in this culture, spreading your cloaks on the ground was a display of honor. Listen to 2 Kings 9, 12 through 13. This is describing the coronation of King Jehu over Israel. And here's what happened when they announced him as king. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment, put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Spreading your coat down on the ground was sort of like rolling out the red carpet for your king. It was a display of honor for a newly coronated king. And spreading out palm branches would have been a similar type of celebration. And the crowd instantaneously erupts into that. Why? Because they're acknowledging with one another publicly, this is our king. This is the king that we've been expecting. And the crowd doesn't just lay down their cloaks. They say something too, right? They shout, Hosanna. Now, Hosanna is an interesting word, okay? As many of you know, the New Testament wasn't written in English. It was actually written in Greek. And if you were to look at a Greek New Testament, do you know what the Greek word for Hosanna is? If it's up on the screen, you'll know. It's Hosanna. You see, we haven't actually translated that word from Greek into English in our Bibles. What the translators did is they just took the Greek letters and they replaced them with English letters. But what's even better is that Hosanna, it's not even a Greek word either. It's actually a Hebrew phrase, Hoshiana. The Greeks did the exact same thing that we did when we translated our Bibles. They just substituted Greek letters for Hebrew letters and didn't translate the word. So if you want to know what Hosanna or Hoshiana actually means, you've got to go all the way back to the Hebrew, which is the original language of the Old Testament. And out of the whole Old Testament, there's only one verse that actually has the word Hoshiana, the phrase in it. Psalm 118.25. It's a psalm of deliverance. Where the people of God are remembering the salvation of God. And that phrase means, save us, please save us. Hosanna was a cry for salvation. But what's interesting about that word, that phrase, is that over time the meaning of Hoshiana began to change. Because it started out as this cry of help for God to come and save us. But it transitioned to a cry of praise For the salvation that the Lord had sent. Psalm 118 is looking back at the deliverance of God. It's praising Him. What's interesting is that the people of God began to experience how faithful God is to save when we call on Him to save. They began to understand that when you call on God to save you, that's exactly what He does. And so that phrase changed over time. It was no longer just a cry of dependence on God. It was a cry of confidence in God. And that's why the atmosphere here on Palm Sunday is filled with so much celebration. Because the crowds aren't desperate in a sense, even though they're desperate. They are calling on God to save them, but they're celebrating that God has sent salvation. Because the expected king was riding into the city of Jerusalem, just like he said he would. And so they were confident, he's going to save us. Now, I know you didn't come to church this morning to take a test, but I'm going to give you a pop quiz. You ready for a pop quiz? You get a discount on your tithe if you get the answer right. And so there's incentive on this. It's how we roll. No, no, of course we wouldn't do that. Here's a pop quiz. Did Jesus come to save his people? Yeah, good job. You all win. That's exactly what Jesus came to do. So 
The crowd expected a king who would come to save them. And what did they get? A king who came to save them. But hold on. The crowd cried something more than Hosanna, didn't they? Verse 10 tells us they said, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. They connect Hosanna to that phrase, the coming kingdom of our father David. They expected Jesus to save them. How? By reestablishing the kingdom of David on the earth. They expected Jesus to save them. How? By overthrowing the Roman Empire and defeating all of their earthly enemies. They expected Jesus to save them. How? By ushering in an age of peace and prosperity. They expected their king to come and they expected him to head straight to the great palace of King Herod and to take his seat on the throne. Now listen, it's easy for us to be hard on the crowds like they're just a bunch of wishy-washy, fickle, worthless people. But there's a good reason for them to expect those things. Because remember the prophecies we read earlier? Well, well, when you read the prophecies, they actually say he will sit on the throne of his father, David. They say he will establish a government. We already read that. One that will fill the whole earth and never end. Even the prophecy from Zechariah 9 about the donkey. Listen to the next verse. Verse 10 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. They know that verse too. So the people expect Jesus, their expected king, to come into the city and move straight to the palace. Take his seat on the throne. Usher in an age of peace. Why? Because the Bible says Jesus will sit on the throne. And he will usher in an age of peace. But you ready for your second part of the pop quiz? When Jesus enters the city on Palm Sunday, does he go to the palace? No. Where does he go? Look at verse 11, our last verse of the text. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus comes into Jerusalem as the expected king, but he doesn't go to the palace. He goes straight to the temple. And I love the way that Mark actually writes this in the text. The crowds have seemed to go away. It's the end of the day. The light is fading. The day's almost done. And there's Jesus standing at the end of the day at the end of a really long road, looking around the temple, knowing what's coming up next. You know, he would go to the palace, right? But when he went to the palace this week, that's where he's put on trial and sentenced to death. So he stops by the temple first and he'll stay here through most of the week. And what does he see when he looks at the temple? He sees an altar, the place where sacrifice was made. On this day, he didn't come to take his seat on Israel's throne. He came to take our place on the cross. He came to do battle, just not with Rome. He came to bring victory, just not with Caesar. He came to bring victory over sin and Satan and death and hell. He didn't come to restore David's kingdom to this earth. He came to restore you and me to our Father God in heaven. His plan wasn't what we expected. His plan was better than what we had expected. You see, Jesus planned to come to Jerusalem twice. 
Once as our suffering Savior and someday in the future He'll return as this world's conquering kingdom. Make no doubt about it, He will keep His promise. The crowds had the right idea. They just expected it to happen in the wrong way. They didn't expect Christ to die. They didn't expect Him to rise again. They didn't expect Him to ascend to heaven. They didn't expect Him to have a second coming. Our expected King reigns in unexpected ways. Jesus had a plan for something better and greater than anyone could imagine. His plan included even the darkness, even the death, even the evil. His plan included the greatest sin ever committed, the murder of God's dear son. His plan even included the darkest hour in all of eternity as the father turned his face away. His plan included the forces of hell seeming to have won the day as his body lay lifeless in a tomb. His plan included a powerful resurrection from the dead and a glorious return someday soon. And church, I cannot explain it to you all. I'm a member of that crowd, more than an expert on all the future. I can't answer all your questions on how Jesus makes it all work. But even in the face of sin and suffering and evil and the work of Satan himself, King Jesus is in control. And King Jesus is accomplishing the Father's plan to the smallest detail. Our expected King reigns in unexpected ways. And let me just cut to the chase. There's an important lesson for us in this. Because Jesus is still the King. And he still reigns in unexpected ways. And he's doing it in your life today. Now let me just ask you this. Is, is there anything that's part of your story? Anything that King Jesus has allowed to happen in your life that you haven't expected? You didn't expect cancer. You didn't expect a prodigal. You didn't expect That the God who promised to supply all of your needs according to his riches would allow you to lose your job. You didn't expect that the abundant life that Jesus promised to give would require you to experience so many things that feel like death. You are living under the reign of of a glorious expected king who reigns in unexpected ways. And the question becomes, what do you do when your expected king reigns in unexpected ways? How do you live in light of a Jesus who's accomplishing a plan that you don't know all about? You see, from this moment on in the life of Christ, Jesus doesn't do what his crowds or his disciples expect him to do. He brings them peace, just not the way they expect. He defeats their greatest foes, just not the way they'd hoped. He established his eternal kingdom, just not the way they envisioned. He had a better plan than the one they imagined, so he doesn't submit to their plans. And you know what they do? They abandon him. Even the disciples run away. If they had believed that Jesus truly was their glorious king, they would have followed his lead. They didn't have to understand them. All they had to do was trust him. They didn't need to figure it all out. They just needed to follow along. And the reality is this, church. If we abandoned Jesus, when he doesn't do what we want him to do, then we don't want 
him to be our king. We want to be our king. And that won't ever do. And that's a sobering test for our hearts today. So as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, what I want us to do is examine our hearts. Do we celebrate our king by submitting to him as king? What part of your life do you need to lay down before Jesus and say, Jesus, you're the king. You're in control, not me. What part of your unexpected journey do you have to place before Jesus and say, Jesus, help me trust you here and believe you are working out a plan. Do you trust him even when you don't understand him? Even when you don't know all that's going on? Jesus is our expected king who reigns in unexpected ways. I want to encourage you to bow your heads and close your eyes and enter into a time of prayer as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I want to encourage you, would you... Would you consider whether or not you've ever placed your faith and trust in Jesus as your King, your Lord, your Savior? Are you trusting in His perfect life and His death on the cross as a payment for your sin and His glorious resurrection that will raise you to a brand new life? Are you trusting in Jesus? Now, right now, would you pray a simple prayer of faith? Jesus, I trust you. To provide forgiveness and restoration, I trust you. As you think about the body and the blood of Christ being shed as a sacrifice for your sin, Something that the people never expected, but is so glorious, it brings you salvation. Would you just praise Jesus for being so great? That in his grace, he gives his life for us and uses his power to save us. Would you ask him to help you trust him today with the unexpected part of his plan for you? you would celebrate Jesus. Father, we thank you for Christ. We praise you that he has come and in his coming as king, he hasn't followed our plan because our plan wasn't big enough. It wasn't good enough. He fulfills your plan for our salvation and his glory. And Lord, help us as we look back over the Lord's Supper and remember the sacrifice of Christ at the cross to remember the whole story. That Jesus did what no one expected him to do but you. And he has fulfilled a plan that no one else could imagine but you. And that includes us. It includes this, this moment, this life, this story. We praise you for Jesus, our glorious and victorious, expected King. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.